You know, you guys today, you are Marines. You know, the few, the proud. We never know who's going to show up at these two services. It's really interesting. Um, I just want to emphasize how important it is if you've got kids or you think you want to have kids, you need to be in, in, in Sean and Tanya's class. That's, that's a good one. It really is. Uh, we started uh, last month on a kind of a mini-series on how to pray. And we addressed the difference last time between false prayer and true prayer. Um, clearly, Jesus tells us how to avoid the example of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and, and uh, instead remove all distractions, whether others or self or anything else, and focus solely on our Heavenly Father. But he knew that his followers needed more instructions on how to pray. And so we see here in verse 9 of chapter 6, After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Before getting into his instructions, we want to take a step back and look at the bigger picture of our piety or how we practice our faith. You know, sometimes we place importance on order in lists. Other times, not so much. You know, when we intentionally want to avoid uh, preference or placing uh, importance on something, we use an alphabetical list, which is just a, 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 an organized way of, of going through something. Uh, but the order on lists can mean something implicitly, like, what is first on a list? Uh, for example, I would argue from a legal and historical standpoint uh, that the First Amendment to the United States Constitution uh, was the first because it, was, it comprised the most important concepts to James Madison who drafted the Bill of Rights and those who signed it. Uh, and that amendment says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now, that's the first of a few bunny trails today. I, I, I put that in specifically because I wanted to, to say, did anybody see the news account of the student or the, the young man who went on the campus of, of one of the Ivy League schools uh, and with a petition that he asked us to sign to repeal the First Amendment. Okay? Now, it seems kind of ironic that somebody would sign a petition to repeal the right of petition. Okay? Okay? Uh, you know, we say that these are our best and brightest at these Ivy League schools, but maybe they're just the people who score the highest on the ACT. That's maybe a better explanation. But back to the passage, though. Uh, in our passage here, we don't have a first on the list, but we have more of a pyramid or a mountain type of a structure here because we started uh, last time or a couple of months ago, with the whole concept of giving as a part of our, of our Christian walk at one end of the base of the triangle. And in the future, we're going to talk about fasting or self-discipline. But at the apex in the middle is prayer. 
Um, you know, some people, unbelievers, have no problem with giving, and some have no problem with their, you know, restricting their diets. But prayer is something that's harder, much, much harder. Um, it, it's so much easier for us to talk to others than to God. It's so much easier for us to stand up here and preach than it is to talk to God. You know, we discover the real conditions of our spiritual lives when we examine ourselves while alone with God. As we mentioned last month, often public prayer becomes addressing others and what we think they need to hear. Have you ever noticed that when you pray publicly or maybe in a prayer group, you have a whole lot more to pray about than when you pray privately? You know, there's also the facet that you can't read an article or a biography about a godly man or woman without seeing that they practiced and they delighted in prayer. So there is a need for instruction in this highest act of the Christian life. Uh, John the Baptist saw the need to guide his disciples in prayer. Uh, and Jesus' disciples noticed. And so they said, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples there in, in Luke 11. And so these disciples, we sometimes refer to them as the Keystone Cops, you know, they had you know, this initial hesitancy or difficulty with prayer, much like we do uh, here. And, and certainly the disciples witnessed Jesus get up early in the morning, sometimes go up into a mountain, sometimes stay up all night in prayer. And you can imagine what was going on in their minds. How does he have so much to talk about? You know, what's he doing with all that time? Uh, and so in effect, they were saying, we want to know and speak with God the way that Jesus does. So Jesus set out to teach the disciples and us not only how to pray, but what to pray in what we call the Lord's Prayer. So we want to address, maybe over the next week, a month or two, uh, some of the principles that Jesus teaches us through this passage about prayer. First, a few observations about the Lord's Prayer. One, it is a model or a pattern prayer. Um, it says, after this manner, pray ye. Uh, he's saying, in effect, when you come to God in prayer, pray in this way. These are the headings that you want to keep in mind. And then he covers all the principles of prayer. Many have commented that the, about the completeness, the economy of it all, how he puts all the principles in just to a few, in a few sentences. In fact, Augustine and Luther both said that there is nothing more wonderful in the Bible than the Lord's Prayer. Now, some believe that this prayer is meant for another age. But like the Beatitudes, the principles of prayer we find in the Lord's Prayer, are not meant just for the disciples or for some future age, but for all Christians at all times, in all places. Jesus speaks to us exactly as He spoke to those around Him. 
On the other extreme, we find some people who assume that this is the only prayer that you are to pray. Now, there's nothing wrong with reciting the Lord's Prayer. But Jesus did not intend for us to simply repeat the prayer as the sum and substance of our prayer life. Jesus Himself did not do that. Finally, uh, just practically speaking, this prayer, much like the 23rd Psalm, has become so ingrained in our minds uh, through the words of the King James Bible that it's somehow strange to hear or especially to say this prayer in any other way. Uh, you know, we don't use the King James often in our teaching here uh, simply because people don't talk using the thundering diction of the King James anymore. But you have to admit, it is the most poetic and beautiful of all the versions. And so because we're so used to it, if you'll allow me, I'm going to use the King James when we go through the Lord's Prayer. To summarize these, these general observations, you know, this is a wonderful pattern prayer used for instruction. It's not to be repeated mechanically. Rather, these are things to be remembered when we pray. And so we must be thoughtful about prayer not just barge in to the presence of God. Uh, we must not be led simply by impulse or feeling when we pray. The Lord's Prayer is a skeleton or a mannequin upon which we are to put the clothes of our specific prayers, if you look at it that way. Jesus explained that is how He prayed. It is not legalism to follow this pattern. Rather, we will find as we study this prayer that it is full of grace. Now, some complain that when they pray, nothing happens. Or they don't feel peace or satisfaction. We tend to be pretty self-centered creatures. Thinking about our lives and our problems and our needs and our desires and we want to walk into the chamber of the great I Am and immediately start to announce our list. Kind of like going through the drive through at McDonald's. Now, while we're all guilty of this, I know, there's just something that's not quite right about that approach to prayer. Uh, according to Jesus here, we should have no expectation whatsoever. Instead, that when we prepare to pray, before we speak, we should first pause. Yes, the consensus of those who are recognized as the best teachers on the spiritual life, that it is the first step in prayer that we should do something called recollection. In other words, simply hold your peace. Um, Job learned this the hard way. You know, if you read the, uh, you know, the, the Bible about Job, he, he had it pretty hard. And a lot of things happened to him. And Job thought so too. He, he started to feel that God wasn't treating him very well, so he hard, started to grumble, maybe complain. And with the sweetness and the, 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 the gentleness and the compassion of a marine drill sergeant, God said, gird up your loins like a man. Grow up. Stop whining. In Job 40, the Lord said to Job, 
Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer him. And Job finally got it. He said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I will lay my hand on my mouth. Simply pause and recollect. It may sound strange to to say that we should pause when we want to pray. What are you doing? Pause to think. What am I doing? We're conversing. With whom? With the only one, the great I Am. And when I do that, I establish a relationship that is more intimate and passionate than any other. When I pray the simple words, My Father. Some believe that prayer should be brief and concise. So they go immediately to their particular requests. They see God is up there with the long white beard just simply pushing buttons and too busy to get you know, tied up with all these other details. But biblical true prayer starts with a form of worship we sometimes call an invocation. An invocation is to call upon the Almighty God. David prayed, Hear my prayer, O God! Some other times, hear my cry uh, throughout the Psalms. Daniel had a problem. He was perplexed and he needed specific direction. But he didn't start with his request. Instead, in Daniel 9, he said, I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. Jesus Himself in the high priestly prayer of of John 17 started with, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Finally, Paul kind of summarizes it when he says in Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, then let your requests be made known unto God. And so, the instruction and examples of prayer always start with this invocation, this worship before our request. So, after pausing, recollecting, and addressing the Father, the first thing that comes out in this pattern prayer is, Hallowed be Thy name. Now, there's another question that requires us to return to the beginning of the prayer. The prayer starts out with, Our Father. Now, who is represented by this personal, this personal pronoun, our? In other words, who are we? Okay. Today, we see in everything from the United Nations to beer commercials, the philosophy, or if you will, the religion... Uh, that emphasizes the universal brotherhood of man. You know, 
you know, we're all in this together, aren't we? It feels so good. And there's a subset of that inclusive worldview. Some religious people hold to the universal fatherhood of God. You know, unfortunately, we don't seem to find that perspective in the Bible. Yes, the Bible teaches us that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes on Him should have eternal life. But that doesn't mean that everybody's going to accept that gift. We're not all, not everybody, constitutes His children. Therefore, the hard truth, it is only believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, only those who exemplify the Beatitudes, only those who can call out with confidence, Our Father. Jesus Himself said of some of the religious Jews that He was addressing that they were of their father, the devil. Now, some may counter that notion with Paul's words in Acts 17 when he was talking to the, the, the Athenians who had many gods, many altars, including an altar to an unknown god. Uh, uh, where he said, we, all of us, are indeed his offspring. Well, if you look at the whole context, it's helpful to look at context, you'll see there that Paul is referring to God as the creator of all things, of all people. He gave life to everybody on earth. Uh, back in John 17, Jesus Himself, who came into the world, he, God so loved the world, uh, Jesus prayed, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Uh, the Bible teaches that it is only as many as receive Him that He gives the right to become children of God. And we become children of God only by adoption. Now, are we all His offspring? Everybody out there? Yes, every human being is and will be created. Whatever they are, whatever they will be, they are, it's because of Him. However, because of the fall of man in Genesis 3, we all inherited a sin nature from Adam and Eve. Therefore, we are born children of the world. We're children of wrath. We're, in fact, children of the devil, all of us at birth. But if you trust fully and only in the suffering and blood of Jesus Christ as payment for your sins in order to satisfy God's perfect justice, God looks down on you in perfect love and gives you the spirit of adoption whereby you may then cry, Abba, Father. Now, this exclusive doctrine is hated by the religious man who believes, oh, we're all children of God. But there's another type of religious man who comes from within the church. I'm referring here to teachers who have attracted large crowds who are extremely popular. Some of those equivocate about the Gospel and send an uncertain message. You've probably seen a guy by the name of Joel Osteen on TV. Uh, and uh, when interviewed by a well-known radio host, uh, he was asked, do people really have to accept Christ as their Savior to be saved? 
And uh, Joel's response was, I just think that only God will judge a person's heart. I spent a lot of time in India with my father. I don't know all about their religion, but I know they love God. And I don't know. I've seen their sincerity, so I don't know. I know for me and what the Bible teaches, I want to have a relationship with Jesus. Well, Joel, if you really don't know, why are you opening your mouth to 30,000 people on Sunday and going on national radio? Seriously. But there's others who come up with their own gospel. Uh, Rob Bell founded the Mars Hill uh, Bible Church in Michigan, and it became the fastest growing church in America. Highly intelligent, creative guy. But he wrote a book called Love Wins. And as I understand Bell's scheme for salvation, God's love wins out over all people, whether during life or after death. Uh, And so that we can all be assured that no matter what, we're all going to heaven and hell is a vacant storage facility. It's a deceptive bluff. It's clearly a threat in the Bible, but an idle one nonetheless. Uh, The consequences of that teaching... Now, if I'm told one way or another, I'm going to be won over either before death or after death and go to heaven regardless of my decisions and my actions during life, I don't really have to believe in Jesus as my Savior. And this isn't a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's not even about being born again. It's literally salvation by birth and death, period. So in terms of its practical effect, If this really is the universal condition, and it all gets smoothed over after death, what happens? Why should missionaries bother to take the gospel to those who haven't heard? Will not the unrepentant jihadist who beheads and the Nazi gas chamber operator stand with Billy Graham in eternity? If love really wins over what does it win? By basic logic, if God's love saves all, then it actually negates and makes irrelevant the whole concept of sin itself. And certainly, the justice of God. If we don't have to believe Jesus died for my sins to go to heaven, then His sacrifice and excruciating pain on the cross may make for a good movie. But it's just a meaningless show. Who cares what Christ did? Because in the end... It's all good, baby. What do these two bright, intelligent, engaging young men have in common? Quite simply, they are thinking, they are teaching, and they are leading by emotion rather than truth. They offer a feel-good gospel. It seems so much more loving to accept all into God's kingdom. But is it? For example... Somebody you love is enslaved to drugs or dangerous sexual habits. And you say to them, God loves you, brother or sister. And you don't have to change a bit. You don't have to confess or repent or do anything because God would never be so cruel as to send you to hell. Is that really love? I want to get a principle across here. We need to remember that love 
without truth is not true love. Okay, please, please get that down. Uh, you might say, Kent, why are we talking about all this stuff? You know, we, we were supposed to talk about the Lord's Prayer. Well, one, it's our job as elders to protect the flock. So we need to warn you about these things that are popular within Christian culture. On the Lord's Prayer, in order for us to pray, Our Father, we need to know who the Father is. We need to know who we are. We cannot be deceived into thinking that He is the Father of all, in this sense, but only for those who trust the work of Christ on the cross. Romans 8 says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, who to those who are the called according to His purpose. Now, I don't know individually who the called or who the elect are, and I suspect that you don't know either. Uh, we cannot presume. But the Bible teaches us that not everyone will trust in Christ. Our job is not to save all, but our job is to witness to all around us, to offer the good news, and allow the Holy Spirit to do the work. Last week, Mike taught that Jesus saves the worst of the worst sinners. Again, whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life. That's true. Praise God. However, if this all-inclusive, all-will-go-to-heaven gospel is true, it makes Mike's message irrelevant. So we cannot mince words here. If you are attracted to that kind of preaching, uh, you need to search the Scriptures. And if you truly do, you will come to no other conclusion that that kind of teaching, no matter how popular, no matter how many people you see in the auditorium, no matter how nice the smile on the preacher, no matter how good it makes you feel, it is unbiblical, it is de deceptive, and it is total heresy. Wipe it out. Now, back to the issue at hand. The teaching of Matthew 6 is only for those who know, confess, and repent of their sin and trust Jesus for their salvation. In my work, uh, I work in adoption a lot, and a significant portion of my work deals with the issue of paternity. In other words, who is the father of this child? And oftentimes that's hard to figure out. The real test of any profession of faith is whether a person can say with confidence and assurance, my father, my God, when you come to pray, you are really coming to your Father. That's the question. Are you really coming to your Father? To do so, you've got to know who, that you are a child of God. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, this is how I pray, and it is how you are to pray to our Father. Now, Jesus refers to God not as simply our Father, but our Father who is in heaven. Paul offers a similar phrase, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Both of these phrases distinguish our Heavenly Father from all others. Why? Because far too many earthly fathers fall short. You know, the media, we criticize the media because they portray fathers as bumbling fools. We've still got to look in the mirror and understand something about ourselves. You know, I don't know all you guys, you know, all that well uh, to know, but I'd be really surprised to find out that, 
that many of you could be characterized as abusive or lustful or lazy or uncaring or irresponsible. But dads, you know I'm saying the truth here. You know you have fallen way short just as I know I have fallen way short as a father. An elder at uh, Topeka Bible Church told me one time that people tend to form their concept of God by what they see in their earthly father. Guys, do you feel the burden? If there is any truth to that, and the Bible says to a little boy or girl, God is your father, what picture does that leave in that little mind? Now, what this says to us is that we as imperfect earthly fathers must take our titles and our roles seriously. We've got to up our game, lest we by simple neglect become a stumbling block to the faith of our own children. The reality is that there are many fathers who are addicted, who are abusive, selfish, unloving, and distant. Many will claim that that's what they had modeled by their fathers, so they use the victim excuse. It's for that reason that Jesus distinguishes God from all other fathers as our Father who is in heaven. This is just not just a, a spiritualized phrase added for effect. Uh, it, it's really important when we approach prayer, we remind ourselves that He is our Father who is in heaven. And we recall at that time His majesty, His greatness, and His almighty power. When you're weak, humiliated, and your heart is in pain, remember, He as our Father knows. When you need something, He knows. When, you're, when you desperately want forgiveness for your sin, He knows. David prayed after his sin with Bathsheba, you desire truth in the inward parts. Now, if we want the blessing of God, we must be completely honest about everything. Why? Because He knows. And He knows not only because He's an awesome, all-knowing God, but because He is a Father. In the sense, he, he knows us just like a father knows his child and knows what's good for his child. It's been a long time since... Uh, Christy and I read the Chronicles of Narnia to our kids. But there's one exchange that I, I just can't forget. Um, and it's Mr. Beaver warning Susan. He's, and he says, Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion with a capital L. Oh, said Susan. I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? And Mr. Beaver said, Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. These are the two truths that cannot be separated. Our God is an almighty God. He's great. He's awesome. He's deserving of our praise and our fear. Yet, 
He looks at us with tender love and the concern of a loving Father. He knows our every need, what's good and what's blessed. He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. So as you approach prayer, before you ask for anything, even daily bread, remember you're in the presence of the Almighty God, the Creator of the universe, the Great I Am, and at the same time, in the presence who loves you beyond what you can imagine. You're in the presence of your Father who is in heaven. Father, Lord God, we adore you, we praise you, and we know we fall short. Lord, teach us to pray. Help us to understand how much You love us in Your majesty. Help us to be the examples to our children so that they will have the highest concept of who You are and that they too will be Your children and be able to pray, My Father who is in heaven. Thank You, Lord, for Your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.